Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast who has spent years listening to countless cases. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into true crime after being recommended a case on a YouTube channel. We both believe once you watch or listen to your first true crime case, there's no going back. So let's do this. If you decided to start listening at episode four, this is the part of the episode where we update each other on our lives and include you guys. So last week we talked about the mugs that we ordered and we finally got them. Cheers. So exciting. (laughs) Cheers through the computer. So if you're watching on YouTube, you obviously can see them. Um, If not, go follow us on Instagram at at terribletruecrime and you'll see a cute picture of us holding our mugs. And other than that, Christmas and New Year's has come and gone. I mean, it was good. I got to go home for a bit, but uh, you know, COVID-19 is still a thing and the Omicron variant is kicking our butts. Yeah, exactly. So quiet Christmas and New Year's, but that's okay. And the other thing that I thought was kind of funny is when we decided to do this podcast, I instantly thought I would hate the sound of my own voice. But then after listening to the first few episodes, I thought, you know what? It's really not that bad, but I can hear myself getting more comfortable with both of us, right? It's still new. So we're getting more comfortable. Last week, I I I have to apologize. I swear, like I like scream laughed into the microphone (laughs) like three different times. And I was like, why are you approaching? the microphone is too loud. <laughs> like there's a couple of things like that that I'm catching now and I think I said like five times in a row last episode. <laughs> but uh, I think so- like you said we're getting used to podcasting and used to the equipment that you're using so hopefully every episode will get better at it and just learn how to improve every episode so so far so good <laughs> we've done I'd say a pretty good job for starters. Definitely and I will pull away from the mic if I laugh this episode. <laughs> and yeah, last thing with me is I'm moving. So we're in an apartment building right now and we we just signed the papers to rent a townhome. So it was super exciting, a lot to do. So next week you'll be seeing a different background if you watch on YouTube and if you listen on podcast form, then absolutely nothing will change. <laughs> I think that's so exciting. A townhouse versus an apartment is a huge change and it's really exciting for you guys. Yeah, we're super excited, but I'm going <laughs> to let you go because I know you have the most exciting news of all. Yeah, so I don't have much to talk about, but I do have pretty good news, um, at least for me, not really for you guys since <laughs> you know it won't really affect you. But if you guys don't know, I do have a 10-year-old golden retriever and I just figured it was time to add to our little family. So we ended up getting a chihuahua. I'll hold her up so you guys can see. And if you're an audio listener, you can head over to Instagram. We're going to post a picture of her. Uh, So she's 10 weeks old. She's an applehead chihuahua. She currently weighs one and a half pounds and her name is Zoe. So I've been kept quite busy with her and my golden running around and cuddling. And so it's been quite the few weeks over the holidays. It was nice to have an extra dog around. So uh, that's what I've been up to. I'm so excited for you guys. And I'm so happy I got to see her when I was in town because although she's going to stay tiny for Mm -hmm. her entire life, I was really scared to miss the entire puppy phase. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm really glad I didn't. So Zoe, our new unofficial mascot, check out our Instagram. Exactly. Yes, Zoe. We and, should make uh, her a little like dog t-shirt with yes. terrible on it. For the sources for this case, I got articles from Wikipedia, The Medium, a global news article from Simon Little, an article from the Vancouver Sun by Amy O'Brien, a separate article from the Vancouver Sun by Petty Fong, an article from the Alaska Highway News by Jeremy Hainsworth, a CBC article, a Vancouver News article, a article from Vancouver is Awesome by Jessica Kerr, um, more information from Vancouver Sun by Tiffany Crawford, an extra magazine article by Robin Perel, and also for the last article, I got it from the T. I I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it's T-Y-E-E News um, by Kate Adosh and Sam Effling. And finally, I did listen to the episode of Dark Poutine that covered this case. Um, they are a great podcast that covers Canadian cases, so if you haven't checked them out, check them out. It's early morning of November 17th, 2001 in Vancouver, British Columbia. And by early morning, I mean around 1 or 2 a.m. A 41-year-old man named Aaron Webster is spending time in Stanley Park. So Marie can see a picture of Aaron, but that'll be in our socials here. But it's a nice picture of him with his his collie dog. Maddie, have you been to Vancouver? I couldn't remember if you had. Yeah, I have been, but it was a while ago, so I don't remember too much about it. Okay, so for those who haven't been, I figured I'd give you some kind of background information about Stanley Park so you could kind of, you know, set the scene in your head. So Stanley Park is a 1,001-acre public park that makes up the northwestern half of Vancouver's downtown peninsula. It's surrounded by the waters of Burrad Inlet and English Bay. The park borders the neighborhoods of West End, and Coal Harbor to its southeast and is connected to the North Shore via Lionsgate Bridge. While it is not the largest of its kind, Stanley Park is about one-fifth larger than New York City's 840-acre Central Park. And that's a good comparison to put it into a correct picture. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, I want to say like most people have been to New York, but I feel like Maybe Canadians have ever been to like or Vancouver. If, if or anything, New York even City, if you right? haven't been to New York, you know about Central Park. So um, exactly. So yeah. it's a large park. It takes up uh, you know a big chunk of the city. It's it's kind of got the importance that Central Park does have to to mm-hmm. New York. Very similar. So it's reported that the area where Aaron was was a well-known gay cruising area. I think it's important to say, and you'll probably hear me say this throughout uh, throughout our episodes, but Marie and I are both cis-heterosexual women, and one of our goals is to cover crimes perpetrated towards members of marginalized communities. We understand that as white women, we have a certain amount of privilege, and we're committed to working on continuing to learn about these communities so we can be better allies. So please, if we misspeak or say anything that is incorrect, we welcome feedback or criticism. So as I said, this part of Stanley Park was a well-known gay cruising area at the time and might still be. And in case you're not familiar with the term, I wanted to give you a bit of background information. So this is from that Medium article that I mentioned earlier. Back in the days when homosexuality was criminalized in North America, this way of doing things was particularly necessary. Coming up with innovative places to have sex while identifying their next partner through as little as moment's eye contact. For bi or gay men who were not able to be out, cruising was about stealing a moment to be true to your sexuality. And for many, this remains the case, although it's not without its risks. While not gender specific in definition, historically a lot of the writing and records on cruising centers around men. The term itself originated as a code word that shielded activities coined by gay males, 
thus creating an entire history and culture around it. Whether Aaron was planning on meeting someone or had just finished an encounter, it's reported that he was half naked. You know, it's kind of reported here and there. So some places half naked, some places he was only wearing his boots. Um, I saw somewhere that says he was just wearing his boots, you know. <laughs> if you just wear boots, boots all, I'd say yeah. you're pretty much fully naked. Pretty much fully um, naked and, and smoking a cigarette, which I thought, like, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Just fully comfortable in his environment. Right. I got to be honest. Sometimes I wish I had that kind of confidence, but I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, seriously. But, you know, maybe we shouldn't be <laughs> too positive about what happens because so what happens next is uh, not Aaron's fault in any way. As we said, good for him for being as confident as he was, naked, there in the park, waiting to meet someone or having just finished an encounter. Yeah. A group of young men carrying baseball bats and other similar weapons notice Aaron and they begin to chase him. Oh, no. So they chase Aaron to a nearby parking lot where I assume Aaron is trying to reach his car and they begin beating him with these baseball bats and other similar things. It's reported maybe pool cues or golf clubs. Aaron is obviously overpowered by these men. He was caught totally by surprise and he is obviously outnumbered. Mm -hmm. Once the men finish their attack, they flee the scene. It was actually one of Aaron's friends, a man named Tim, who found Aaron on the ground severely beaten. Aww. Tim was driving home from Stanley Park around 2.30 a.m. when his headlights illuminated the scene. Tim walks out of his van to try and find out what's going on. He immediately realizes what he stumbled onto, runs back to his van, and calls 911. The 911 operator tells Tim to go check on the man and try to find a pulse. This is when Tim realizes that the man laying on the ground is his friend Aaron. What are the odds, eh? Yeah. Like he sees this not knowing that it's his friend and then realizes while he's on the phone with 911. Like I can imagine he's already like in total shock. Like he's come yeah. across this person who's been like violently beaten. Mm -hmm. And he's, it, it's reported in an article that I read, so probably one of our sources on top, that Aaron had his hands kind of over his face, so probably trying to, you know, shield himself yeah. from the attack. So when Tim actually went to check for a pulse, he somewhat had to peel the hands oh. back, and that's when he realized <gasps> that it was oh. his friend Aaron. The two had known each other for over 15 years. Oh, These just, are good friends. Yeah. yeah, that must be, like you said, he was already in shock, but to realize Surreal. it's also your close friends for 15 years. That just gives me goosebumps. Two police officers arrive at the scene and they find Tim attempting to perform CPR on Aaron. The officers immediately request an ambulance having seen, you know, this horrible, horrible mm -hmm. scene. The officers immediately request an ambulance to try and help Aaron. Unfortunately, shortly after this, Aaron dies in Tim's arms. Oh, oh that's so sad. It's like pure tragedy. This next part is, is a quote from Tim. So he, this is what he tells Vancouver's son. Um, I think it was relatively soon after the attack. So I'll let you read it, Marie. Although it was terrifying, I was glad I was there. If Aaron was seeing something, at least he saw a friend. I just wish I could have done more. You feel so helpless. So I think we can agree this is really tragic and awful, but I think we can almost agree with what Tim is saying. Yeah, like, for sure. If you could be there for your yeah. friend in their last moments, then. Exactly. At least, I mean, he can maybe feel somewhat of support and know that he's getting help in his last moments, but unfortunately it didn't end in a positive way. But also, unfortunately for Tim, I'm sure that also scars him to see his friend pass away in his arms. So here's some information I could find about Aaron and who he was as a person. Aaron was a member of Vancouver's gay community. Aaron had lived through and seen the impact of the AIDS crisis in Vancouver. 
Aaron had lost two longtime partners to AIDS. The most recent, his name was Stephen, and it was about four years ago at the time of the attack and the murder. He had also just lost his dog, a collie named Zane, that he had owned for 17 years. <gasps> 17 years. 17 years. Like, that is wow. true love right there. Yeah. Aww. best of friends i'm sure mm -hmm. and this is the picture that we'll be using a picture of aaron and his his colleague zane mm -hmm. so if you if you do want to see it please go to our social media because it, it's it's really amazing they're like it looks like a professional photo yeah. shoot like he took his yeah, dog yeah. To get, it's like it's I, like something amazing. you would like take like um engagement pictures with your partner kind oh, of thing yes. but he brings his dog and i just think that's the cutest thing ever we're such dog people like yeah for it <laughs> He loved photography. He had a great sense of humor. He was caring and he was quite a spiritual person. He worked as an assistant manager at a general paint store and he lived and was president of a building named City View Housing Co-op where he had many friends. The days and weeks after Aaron's murder, hundreds of people got together to march in the streets and hold vigils. It's reported Vancouver's gay community was hit with anger and grief. 1,500 people joined the rally in the West End of Vancouver as community and allies. At first, the police had no leads. They were asking for any witnesses to come forward. Although it was early in the morning, the police seemed pretty sure that someone had to have seen or heard something. They were unsure what motivated the killers, but said the nature of the attack had earmarks of a hate crime, which, you know, I think we can agree with. It's a known cruising area. The people who perpetrated the crime came to the area with weapons. Yeah, and I can definitely understand the community, you know, as you said, hit with anger and grief because really it could have happened to any of them since it is an area that they most likely also go to. And if it is a hate crime, it, it is targeted towards their community. Definitely getting together to march in the streets is is what they could do to support Aaron and their community. Exactly. So Aaron's death obviously shocked not only the 2SLGBTQIA plus community, but Vancouver as an entirety as well as Canada. Mm -hmm. There were vigils held throughout Canada as well, and I think we, we really felt the aftermath of this brutal murder. So just to remind everyone, this happened in November 2001, so we're kind of skipping ahead a little bit. We're in August of 2002, and no arrests have been made yet. Another parade is held, and Aaron is named the Grand Marshal of the parade. During the parade, police officers used the event to recruit people of the community to join the police force. So I think... What we'll talk about is, is this murder really had some kind of groundbreaking and foundational changes for relationships with the community as well as, you know, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, I thought that was important. Like, you know, there's always, always improvements to be made. So let's talk a little bit about the investigation. I found a wonderful timeline directly from an extra article by Robin Perel. So this is directly from our article. I could not have done it better. So I just... Mm -hmm took it and we're just going to go with it and you know we'll talk about it as we go. So now we're in February of 2003, more than a year after Aaron's murder, police make an arrest in the case. The Crown charges a youth who can't be named because he was under 18 at the time of the incident with manslaughter. Wow, that's young. Yeah, so under 18 at the time of the incident. So I think yeah. that's kind of important, but really young to think Mm -hmm. Like right off the bat, you think that's not possible, right? There's yeah. no way you someone that, that young. Time, yeah, that kind of decision, that age. Yeah. Or be so passionate about hating individuals that much at that age. I don't know. That's a lot. Yeah, I just I just think about like being around that age. Mm -hmm. and I just like nothing would have. Yeah. I cared so little about everything. I feel like, you <laughs> know, in age, the sense yeah. that like I wasn't that passionate about nah. 
anything and like Mm -hmm. you know there's always like the whole mom mentality thing which will somewhat get into but you know even then i just i can't see it so july 30th of 2003 the first youth pleads guilty. October 9th of 2003, Danny Rayo and Ryan Cran, the second teen who can't be named, are arrested and charged with manslaughter. So we know their names now because, you know, they've aged out of that. Yeah. Um. So morally, it seems a little bit confusing that you wouldn't be able to know their names at the time, but the names would come out later. Right. But, you know, who cares? They, they did this, so... <laughs> We'll say their names. October 15th of 2003, Ryan Cran is granted bail. He soon returns to custody because his family can't raise the money required to post his bail bond. But Danny Rayo remains in jail. November 28th, 2003, sentencing submissions are presented for the first youth. Crown counsel Sandra Dworkin asks for a 20 to 32 month sentence. She says she cannot prove the killing was a gay bashing, but says the attack seemed to target peeping toms oh right so the thing is from what i could read is that so they go with manslaughter instead of a hate crime because apparently a hate crime is way harder to prove like intention or motivation Mm -hmm. behind a crime is harder to prove than the fact that you actually just did it yeah and they were worried about the men getting off Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So instead they went with manslaughter to make sure that they were convicted. Exactly. So at this point, we're talking about four different youths. So Mm -hmm. it it gets a bit complicated because we don't have the names. Uh, We'll kind of go into, you know, Ryan Cran and Danny Rayo are kind of the, 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 you know, top two perpetrators here. The other thing about not having it called a hate crime or not having them charged with a hate crime is that it, it, it makes sense in like a, you know, kind of black and white way. But I think it's very hard for the community and family to kind yeah. of swallow that pill because th- that is what it is and it's kind of like calling right. what it is it's unfortunate because it, i don't think it's exact justice that they wanted or need as a community because it's not acknowledging what happened um, exactly. in terms of a hate crime yes they'll for sure be put away but at the same time like i just said it's not acknowledging that it was a hate crime and that can also be very hurtful and just to what you're saying they're just being charged at this point right 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 so yeah, we don't know anyway so yeah, yeah well i mean they do end up mm-hmm. doing some sort yeah. of time for it but i you're not going to be happy also um is it just me that's like kind of scared that they can be out on bail like if yeah like if someone Weird, right yeah to me if someone had committed a murder whether it's manslaughter or hate crime whatever it is committed a murder that's kind of scary i know they're not sentenced yet but i don't know yeah maybe i'll do like a little segment next episode on like how kind of canadian bail works because i'm actually yeah. not 100 percent sure and it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to find out like what qualifies you for bail and how much i think I might be mistaken by just like listening to American crime shows or just TV. I think the judge decides what your bail is set at, but we'll definitely get back to it. We'll add it to our update segment next episode. Yeah, perfect. So just to kind of recap, because I know I'm giving a lot of information. So we have Ryan Cran and Danny Rayo, and there's two other youths that names don't come out later. December 12th, 2003, Ryan Cran is released on bail. December 22nd, 2003, Danny Rayo is released on bail. December 18, 2003, a youth court judge named Valmont Romilly rules the attack was motivated by hatred 
and calls it a gay bashing and designates it as a hate crime. He sentences the first youth to three years, the maximum sentence a youth can get for manslaughter. The youth is to spend two of those years in a youth detention center and the last year at home under strict conditions. From what I was able to read, so some judges did want to make sure that the word hate crime was included mm-hmm. um, in the court proceedings, but not all of them. It's kind of a, a weird line and I feel like we'll, we'll talk about it a bit more later from what I was able to understand. And then there was also a big question on whether they were going to be tried as adults or as youth because so right on the borderline very- right yeah yes and they're so at the time that the attacks were committed they were very obviously used like i think the oldest mm-hmm. was 17 um but that is still on the borderline like you're saying yeah. right like i think 18 you're considered an adult so mm-hmm. and-, and then but by the time the trial takes place you're an adult and it's kind of like okay so how do we go from here Exactly. And there are very different like Mm -hmm. circumstances and sentencing for both age groups, obviously. So that kind of comes into play here. And I've never really thought of getting three years with the last year at home under strict conditions. I've never heard that before. So that's interesting to me. That, must um, be something strictly for youth and yeah. like obviously we don't hear a lot about mm-hmm. people under 18 killing other people yeah thankfully <laughs> well at least i don't hear a lot of no it, me so. neither and the thing is that this is manslaughter like it's for a murder so i find it strange that they can be at home under strict conditions and you know it's not like just a regular not regular crime but a, a lesser offense exactly yeah yeah yeah. January 22nd, 2004, the second youth pleads guilty. March 31st, 2004, sentencing submissions are presented in court for the second youth. Crown counsel Greg Weber seeks the maximum sentence but does not describe the killing as a hate crime. So like I just mentioned, like we're not lawyers, we're not experts on any mm-hmm. of this. It seems like, you know, through court proceedings, they're able to kind of throw that in or, or keep it out. So is it also different judges' perception, possibly? That's that- what I think. I don't want to say yes I don't know. Sure, that's a, that's I don't what know. I. That's what my first uh, thought is on that, is that different judges may have a different perception on the act and the information that was gathered. But yeah, anyways. Definitely. April 13th, 2004, the preliminary hearing starts for Ryan Cran and Danny Rayo. They are both being tried as adults and they're being tried together as co-accused. So very different than youth one and youth two. So I think the idea behind this is through kind of the interrogation process and the investigation is that these two were really kind of the ones behind the attack and youth one and youth two probably just had kind of that mob mentality feeling about it right like we yeah. were saying like oh my friends are doing this like these guys are maybe just older go. than me i'll just yeah. go along with it you know yeah april 21st 2004 youth court judge jody weirer sentences the second youth to three years though she hands him the maximum sentence as well she does not designate the killing a hate crime she notes that the youth was already on probation for possession of stolen property and operating a stolen vehicle at the time of webster's death so aaron's death so not clear what that has to do with it being designated a hate crime or not, but maybe she, you know, there must, obviously there's, there's missing information that yeah. not everybody gets, right? Mm-hmm. So May 28th, 2004, Judge Janie Crawford convicts Danny Rayo of obstructing justice after he attempts to interfere with a witness for his upcoming trial. So Slippery slope right there. Yes. 
slimy little snake. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I feel like this means that he's either threatened or tried to talk to or convince a witness mm-hmm. not to or talk. Or promise things, or, yeah. This is, an, this is a huge no-no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't do this if you're in his position ever. And that's something it's that, like, everyone knows. Yeah. It's not it's a stupidity, a, a, yeah. right? It's common sense. Yeah. July 9th, 2004, Danny Rayo appeals his obstruction conviction. November 15th, 2004, Danny and Ryan's trial begins in BC Supreme Court. Both adults plead not guilty. So if you remember a little bit before, we talked about the the youth one and youth two. So it seems that they both pleaded guilty and got, you know, the standard three-year sentence mm-hmm. for them. These two are being tried as adults and pleading not guilty. And these two are the ones that prosecutors are saying are the main. Well, I didn't like necessarily read anywhere that it says that they were kind mm-hmm. of the ones behind the idea of the attack or kind yeah. of, you know, but it just, it obviously seems that way. So mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, it could be that the other two are just youths. Like it could yeah. be that one of the younger men, you know, started this, but it we'll talk a bit. So I'm doing this a little bit backwards, but we'll talk a bit about kind of what brought investigators to specifically Ryan Cran um, after this timeline and you'll see that Ryan Cran really seems like like the man who okay. kind of had the, the main you know, idea yeah yeah the main idea to to do something like this okay so December 10th 2004 Justice Mary Humphreys convicts Ryan Cran of manslaughter but acquits Danny Rayo because she says there's too much reasonable doubt to find him guilty. Though the youth's testimony clearly placed Rayo as an active participant at the scene of the killing, the judge rules their testimony is too fraught and inconsistent, and no one else testified conclusively against Danny Rayo at the trial. Brian Cran, however, boasted to at least one other person that we lynched a guy. Oh my god. Yeah, so this is like, I don't know if we'll go back over the investigation because I think in this timeline, it's kind of comes out. But mm-hmm. Ryan Cran had told, I think, uh, multiple people about what they had done and, you know, came off like very proud of it, said they had gone there looking for quote unquote peeping Toms. And that's just what makes it a hate crime is is stuff like this that comes exactly, out. Like, like it makes proud. it more obvious. Exactly. Yeah. And, and brag, he, it's like almost bragging. Oh, for sure. And then he eventually said something like he felt terrible, but you know, they did it for not fun, but like as something to do, right? Like the thrill of it. That's awful. And then Danny Rayo exchanges angry words with a gay spectator in the courtroom before being led away for release by a sheriff. So you're also ruining your own lives. Like your hatred of people. I don't understand. You're not even trying no, to. You're, like, do you're you in care a what other people do? Why do you care about other people? You're ruining your own life because you care so much mm-hmm. about what other people are doing in their personal lives. Yeah. It like, has no effect on you. Literally. No. Like, I just don't – I'll never get where that type of hatred comes from. Mm-hmm. It just – it's just not natural to me, and yeah. I'm glad it isn't. It's just – to me, it just makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. We're now in January. We're January 23rd, 2005. About a thousand gay protesters gather on the steps of the BC Supreme Court to demand a hate crime designation on the eve of Ryan Cran's sentencing. On the 27th, Cran's sentencing submissions are heard in court. Crown counsel Greg Weber asks for for a six to nine year sentence. He does not seek a hate crime designation. February 8th, 2005, Justice Mary Humphreys sentences Cran to six years for manslaughter. She does not call it a hate crime. 
She says she didn't hear any evidence at the trial to prove that Brian Cran deliberately targeted a gay man. This is, it's so hard because I feel like as a judge, like for her, it's like she really needs to see like that, that You need proof to go and, like, directly by the law, regardless of, of what you think personally or how you view the case. If it's not within the evidence and the law, it's, it's really difficult to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's just, it's hard for the family. It's hard for the community. It's mm-hmm. hard for, you know, Aaron, like mm-hmm. just, you know, wanting to, to get justice for him. And he was trialed as an adult and he's getting sentenced to six years. Yeah. So February 8th, 2005, outraged gay community members and Aaron's family called for the then BC Attorney General, Jeff Plant, to conduct an investigation into the prosecution of the case and the Crown's decision not to seek the hate crime designation. In December of 2005, the first youth is released from custody to serve the last year of his sentence at home under supervision. It just, like, it happened so fast and it, I know that they were young and I... I just feel like it's not enough. Like, but isn't it crazy that they're still trying to seek justice um, in 2005 for hate crime? But then it's 2005 is also the last year where the first youth is released from custody. Yeah, like this like, happened 2001. It happened and the so first slow. Already being released. Yeah, it happened so slow to get proper justice, but it happened so fast for the youth to serve their time that it's such a a mind game because it's it doesn't make sense like the puzzle pieces don't fit that's like so well put like mm-hmm. families and community members and friends have yeah. been waiting yeah four years so they're still protesting they're still grieving they're still going through all of the motions yet the first youth is already released yeah yeah crazy then in april of 2006 april 20th the second youth is released from custody to serve his last year at home Mm -hmm. under supervision so obviously it wasn't said earlier in this article but he also got the same deal as the first first youth so two years um you know in some type of youth prison system and then the last year living at home you know that nice. that goes by fast when you're young and then february 6 2009 having previously been denied early parole that he had applied for ryan Cran is released on statutory parole after serving two-thirds of his sentence behind bars parole board documents show that Cran was involuntarily transferred to a higher security while incarcerated for alcohol use so i think he he got caught like when he had early he had applied for early parole previously and he got caught drinking some sort of vodka i think like ugh. <laughs> just i just hate him <sighs> gotta compose myself here <laughs> he is instructed to abstain from alcohol and avoid people he suspected to maybe involved with criminal activity so he gets released and that's what he gets he's like mm, just try to abstain from yeah, alcohol try your best try, you know and you know avoid people that you know may be involved in some kind of criminal activity oh and also you should probably get some some counseling that would for sure while he you. only served two-thirds of his sentence which to me, at least, it was already kind of a low sentence to begin with. Yeah. Right? Uh, For yeah. murder. So, so, and then what I, you know, I'm only one person doing this research. And from what I gather, Danny Rayo just got off. Mm. Like he didn't, there was no, Nothing. like his name's out there. And I hope that people know who he is. And that he's involved, that he was involved, but mm-hmm. two men served three years and one served two thirds of a six year sentence. And a man's That's life hurtful. was taken yeah. brutally, 
brutally taken. Exactly. Yeah. Intentional. Yeah. yeah very intentional. No, no questions asked in mm-hmm. our book. This was extremely intentional. Mm-hmm. The other thing about Ryan Krant being, you know, allowed to be set free and walking in BC. So I think he had to ask permission to actually go into Vancouver. But the fact that he was even just like able to go into Vancouver. Mm-hmm. I don't really get like I think he was originally from Burnaby so what I get is that his family was still there and he had to apply in writing for approval to visit Vancouver. Now obviously the 2SLGBTQIA plus community in Vancouver for this like it probably just shows them that if something like this happened to them that the perpetrators would just be mm-hmm. able to walk free like I know for, for me I, you know I can't even begin to put myself in those shoes but yeah. I know that like that feeling would probably just be something of feeling like I'm worthless right like my life was taken and this is all that these people got Mm -hmm. and now he's walking free having not even served his full sentence yeah and he he has like minimal restrictions from what I from what from what is reported there's very minimal restrictions and he's even allowed to go into Vancouver in the west end where the gay village is you know Mm -hmm. and he's allowed to go there he just has to ask for it and even like a receiving approval, like what does that necessarily even like give you, you know, well, like, be okay, you have you approval, have go. And then what happens after that, you know? Yeah. A memorial calendar was published in 2002 to raise funds by donation for a bench and shelter to be placed in Stanley Park in Aaron's memory. Most of the images used were photos taken by Aaron himself. If you can remember, he was a, a passionate photographer, so pretty amazing. The calendar was sponsored by many Vancouver organizations. A memorial bench and plaque was installed near the spot where Aaron was killed. That's so (laughs) sweet. Wow. Yeah. The community that rallied around Mm -hmm. him is just, you wish he could have seen the impact he had. And And it's horrible that his death had to cause Mm -hmm. that, but uh, just like a lot of love. Yeah. And their continuous efforts throughout the years um continuous we'll get exactly just this past november aaron's name appeared again in the news this time it is his friends and family in the community who are asking to help raise seven thousand dollars in order for the park bench to be renewed just needs a bit of a facelift it sounds like so Mm -hmm. they're they're asking for donations so so their goal is seven thousand Okay. Um, Chandra Herbert, a member of the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia, said that renewing the bench was a chance to reflect on the battle against hatred and the discrimination for the LGBTQ2 people face to this day. He continues, the pain never goes away. Being here, just thinking about him, but also thinking of all those others since he was murdered who have also faced this violence is incredibly sad, but it also fortifies the soul to keep standing up for equality and for a better way to live and against hate, he said. I don't think we can forget, and I don't think we should forget, that Aaron Webster was murdered in this park for being gay. Because too often, people say that was in the past, that's all gone, while 20 years is not that long ago. And that's what I really like about having a bench in his honor for people not to forget when we're, they're walking in that park. As I hinted to earlier, you know, Aaron's murder had kind of a, a shockwave effect through Vancouver, BC, and even all of Canada, I'd say. In 2017, the Vancouver police appointed Constable Dale Queering, a straight male cop, to work as the city's first LGBTQ2S plus liaison officer. Interesting choice to appoint a straight man to this position. I think usually they'll look for members of the mm-hmm. community to help the community. Yeah. Um, 
but we'll talk a bit about this man and he seems he's like he's coming from a really good place mm-hmm. and i also you know read a couple articles with really good feedback for him so i hope that he's still in this position and he's you know still continuing the good work clearing said he wants the community to know he's in it for the long haul He's a 16-year veteran of the Vancouver Police Department. First proposed the idea for the position back in February of 2017. At the time, he was working as the department's hate crimes investigator, a role he had had for four years. And he took the new liaison position in addition to his everyday duties. It got so busy that he suggested making it a full-time position, something that finally came up to fruition at the end of September. So it seems like he was really spearheading Mm -hmm. and just like noticing from his previous work the need for this type of... Yeah, and I think it's a good idea to make it a separate position because sometimes when you have too much on your plate in one position, you could kind of put things on the back burner and this clearly needs to be prioritized. So it's really nice that it was made its own position. I think uh, what we're we're seeing or maybe it's getting talked about a lot more in policing is community policing and the importance of kind of seeing the same faces over and over again, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's at-risk communities or marginalized communities having that trust in the officers that are not mm-hmm. like serving the entirety of the city that are designated to your area and that you see again and again you have a good relationship with like that really does wonders for a community so i mean it's a a great idea and i couldn't find like any 2021 2022 information about him but i hope he's still still in this position and you know continuing obviously something that really motivates him so Mm -hmm. so this next section here is is from that article by kate adach and sam eifling that i mentioned earlier sergeant rob fayaro is the man who led the vancouver police department's investigation into aaron's murder fayaro called the three-year investigation into Aaron's death, the most labor-intensive case of his career in homicide. But out of it came a newfound trust and respect between the police and the West End residents, both groups seem to say. The West End mobilized in other ways too. West Enders against violence everywhere and neighborhood watch and support groups just beginning to form in 2001 harnessed attention over the crime and loudly staked its position that victims should report assault to help the police address them so i think what they're saying here is often assaults are are not reported or Mm -hmm. they think you know they can't do anything about it so a lot of these groups just came together to empower themselves empower their communities to trust in the police Mm -hmm. report assaults you know you you can only try i guess and hope that the police will have your back i know that it's it's not always perfect and that often doesn't happen but it seems like there's real trust that's kind of being built that i hope is still there today yeah hopefully in 2008 the VPD's Diversity and Aboriginal Policing Team joined Community, that is a community organization. They're actually the organization that we're donating to this week in delivering the Aaron Webster's Anti-Violence Project, a series of public awareness forums to address the underreporting of violence. Canada introduced legislation that would add sexuality to the Canadian definition of hate crimes, putting it on par with race, color, ethnicity, and religion. This statement here is what makes me think which makes me maybe realize that this might be why it was so difficult to call what they had a hate crime. I'm not sure it was actually in the definition at the time, which definitely should have been ridiculous that it took that long, but definitely glad it's there now. If Aaron Webster did one thing, Sergeant Rob Farrow said, he changed people's perception and attitudes, adding sexuality to hate crimes, reset the bar on what's right and what's wrong. We're going to say it again and again, but it had such an impact on the Mm -hmm. community and Canadians Mm -hmm. and how we see things. And it's awful that it had to happen. But I hope that his, you know, friends and family can find some sort of comfort knowing that he 
had such an impact on other people's lives. Yeah, and made a big difference within the community and with everyone's perception on the fact that these things are still happening and it's not acceptable. So I'm glad to say that the aim for the bench, like I mentioned, was $7,000. 12340 has been raised so far. That's awesome. So that I'm was back so in happy. November, I think, of 2021. Okay. And you're still able to donate. This week, we will be donating to Community. This is from their website. Community is a nonprofit organization based in Vancouver, BC, that works to improve queer, trans, and two-spirit lives. We provide a safer space for LGBTQ2SAI plus people and their allies to fully self-express while feeling welcomed and included. Our building serves as a catalyst for community initiatives and collective strength. We will also be donating to the restoration of Aaron's Bench. If you would like to contribute to community or the bench restoration, the link to donate will be in our description and our Instagram bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.